Hey, TMT followers, just wanted to give you a heads up. If you like this podcast, you might also like, it's called the Viral Jesus Podcast by our guest today, Heather Thompson Day. Got some great interviews on there, and I think you would enjoy it. Enjoy the podcast. You're listening to the Monday Christian Podcast, the program dedicated to helping you put into action the truth of God's word that you hear on Sunday to your everyday life on Monday. And now, here are your hosts, Ezra Beyer and David Hartkoff. Thanks so much for taking some time to check out the Monday Christian podcast. And uh, well, Dave, it's not every day we have someone from Michigan on the podcast. So you're excited. Yeah, we were just chatting beforehand. Uh, Dr. Thompson Day is uh, currently residing in St. Joe, Michigan, and it's a great town on Lake Michigan. And uh, it's just always nice to, there's like an unspoken connection when somebody is sort of from your neck of the woods, you know, so I'm looking forward to chatting with her today. Well, to even and out, we've got someone coming on from Toronto in a couple of weeks. So anyways, <laughs> we'll uh, even, even the score again. So we yeah. have to keep this ratio of Americans to Canadians fairly, you know. Got to keep the audience happy. Exactly. Yep. Absolutely. Exactly. Dr. Heather Thompson Day is associate professor, or was associate professor at of communication at Colorado Christian University. And is the author of this latest book, It's Not Your Turn. And... Uh, Right from the title, I said, hey, this is a book that I want to check out because Dave and I have talked different <laughs> times, kind of a point in our, our lives where it's super useful, super practical. And as I was reading this book, I thought, wow, what a timely discussion, because how many of us, Dave, I just think of this last year, yeah. hearing different people like in our podcast audience going through seasons of transition, right? Yeah. And times of like, oh, man, God, what are you doing through all, all of this? So many questions. Yeah. And yeah, I think for both perfect. of us, as right, being in school mm-hmm. and just kind of that grind, uh, maybe about a month ago, pastor was gone and I had, I preached uh, from Acts 1, waiting is not wasted time. And uh, I yep. was sort of low key complaining about something the other night. And Jess was like, hey, remember that message you preached about a month ago? You should really take your own advice. And it happens uh, too much. Happens yeah. Too much. <laughs> I was like, at least she was listening, right? But yeah. seriously, um, like a needed, a needed topic. I think for, for my life right now, I feel like a little bit in a season of waiting, uh, very happy, but also just kind of expectant. And, uh, so I'm looking forward to, to chat, chatting with Heather today about this. Well, Dr. Heather Johnson day, thank you for joining us today and, uh, welcome. Yeah, I'm happy to be here. Well, let's jump right into it. And this is a question I've gotten and gotten away from recently, but I want to go here. How did you first come to faith in Christ? From what I remember, you grew up in a Christian home. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, my dad was an evangelist. And so I, my childhood was not that normal. We traveled in a van all over the United States and abroad, not in the van, but okay, what, kind of, what kind of van? Too. Cause this sounds familiar. It was a big, does it really? Oh yeah, we had a tw- we had a twelve passenger, and the great thing before people cared about seatbelts, right? Yeah, you would lay down on all the benches, and it was really like a van a death trap, right? Because like you, you, I always think, what if we got in an accident? Because you're laying like either on the seat or on the floor. Yeah, like what was yours like? You don't understand how much my heart 
is so happy right now that you know what it was like to sleep in a van with your siblings. Like we did that driving across to New York or wherever he was going to be speaking that day or that weekend. And so my, my childhood was very much filled with, um, wonderful Christian parents who exemplified and lived out the gospel in their lives. And looking back, I feel so bad because I don't know if you and your siblings were better. My sister and I, we hated it. Oh, no, we, we were always good. Yes. Well, <laughs> it's well, what well, it happens when you're Canadian. Yes. Yeah, is that what yeah. it is? Yeah. We yeah. are entitlement, right? Um, we complained <laughs> the whole time. And looking back, I'm like, huh, I really think that's why my family is so close. It's because of all those years that we spent in the van. We, we did have a home, but we just also would spend the weekends traveling to and fro with dad in the van. And actually looking back, I think that was so wise of him um, to, to not speak places that he couldn't bring all of us. Mm. Did you ever travel into Canada much? So I've spoken in Canada a few times for my own, but I don't remember going there with my dad. I don't think so. See, we would come, there's a, a place about eight hours north of that border, right with Windsor, right? Um, it's called Cochrane, Ontario, home of Tim Hortons coffee. Best. Okay. I don't, I can't really call it the best coffee, but it's like the best aroma. They are just like, like the atmosphere of it. It's just, it's contagious. Canadians so really love that Tim Hortons. They do. And I don't, it's, it must be a cultural thing because I didn't. So many Americans just haven't seen the light with this one. It and must so be. Okay. It's, it's just, it's, it's, it's a, it's a sign of maturing. To, in your you know. coffee palate. So Dave, Dave yeah. still has a ways to go, but yeah. Yeah, they're over. They overburn their coffee. Like it's over roasted, and it's mostly nostalgia for you. You just won't admit it. Yeah. But so I'm we not would, bitter. So yeah. So we would travel in this in this van right from eight hours north of of um, the border, and then we would come down to Ohio or Pennsylvania. And each time it's like an eighteen hour trip. And so right. I think of my mom. She would drive that straight through, like eighteen hours. That, that is a long time. So like you Wait, said, can we just you get very close stories? to each other, don't you? Yeah, so one time, Ezra, one time we left my dad at a rest stop. Oh. We thought he was in the car. in the middle of the night. He got out apparently to go to the bathroom, and we all got back in and kept driving through to Ohio. And then, you know, it was back when they had the cell phone in the car, like actually attached a oh, car phone. That. Yeah. yeah, we we did. We had to because we traveled all the time. So we had a car phone, and then we got a call from the police saying that we left my African-American father in a restroom, like in the middle of like this really seedy place. And it was a bad thing. He was so mad. He still to this oh, day great. has not let it go. One of the best, remember now I don't remember this happening, but I know that it, that it did. So we pulled into a rest stop to, to stop, right? Well, that's what usually what you do at rest stops. <laughs> And uh, so we, whoa, we pull, whoa. slow we, down, <laughs> professor. Slow down. I'm taking we, notes. we pull we pull in behind this transport, and my dad is parked there, right? And so he goes to sleep, and then he wakes up, and what does he see? He sees the back of a transport truck, right? And so your natural thought is you've been driving for whatever ten hours, and so you can imagine the the panic that came over him when that happened. So yes, lot, lots of stories like that and beyond. Right. So, I feel like we we just. Dave, we might not even need you for this podcast. Yeah, that's <laughs> we cool. Do we're, 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 yeah, we do my Michigander. We do. Yeah, just going to talk about trips from the road. So <laughs> I'll take notes and just be here, dude. I got you. Back. No worries. <laughs> All right, let's let's get into something very serious here. Um, okay. I feel like that this is that's really what this podcast, as you can tell, is is all about. Very tackling <laughs> the serious things of life. Um, okay, I'll just start with this. A lot of people have started this. I know when they've introduced you, but it's it's such a cool story. Um, 
there's this tweet on your page. You might be familiar with it, actually. Uh, you say, I had a student once who entered college with a 1.2 GPA. She finished with honors and a full ride scholarship to her next school. She was the same person she was in high school. Only difference was that in college for the first time she had a bed. Yeah. That tweet, as you know, is generated, I think, I don't know, close to 500,000 likes or whatever. And so obviously it, it struck a chord with, with many people. The reason I bring that up is because I feel like that embodies your philosophy of teaching and connecting. So elaborating on that story, what, how has that story and others like that changed the way that you teach and view life? Oh, man. Teaching has changed everything for me. Um, and because of stories like that one, and there's just so many, it, it's just opened my eyes to the fact that we can all end up at the exact same place at the exact same time on the exact same campus and yet have had very different journeys to getting to that seat. Right. And I think something happens where you sit down and you're in the same room at the same time on the same campus. And so you just kind of assume, you know, everybody's story. And so because I teach classes like communication, where we spend so much time talking about why we even like the word choices we use, why we view relationships the way we do. I get to know so much about my students that, you know, maybe other than psychology, I don't know how many other courses allow you to dive into your student's life in the way that I get to. And so it's just changed me. I mean, I, I don't have the luxury anymore of assuming that I know what happened to somebody before they stepped foot in my classroom. I just don't. Because at this point, I've been doing this for over 10 years. I have about 200 different students every semester. I just, I, 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 have, I remember one semester at final exam time, a girl came up to me after she did her final exam and said, I didn't want to tell you this because I didn't want you to feel bad for me or change my grades or feel like I was asking you for something, but I, I'm homeless and I've been living under the bridge. And every now and then my mom and I will find a house that's for sale that we'll break into and we'll sleep inside of it. Mm. And I, that was, I can't even tell you how many times I'm serving students that I think, oh, this is just a typical college kid and it is not at all. And so it's just changed yeah. the way I do all of my communication because I realized, my goodness, everybody has a story. Are, are you familiar with Terrence Lester? Do you know that name? No. Uh, runs an organization called Love Beyond Walls in Atlanta. Um, anyways, such a cool story. He, he um, so he's spent, you know, he grew up homeless um, for I think it was about a year of his life. And just, I've been doing some writing projects with, with him and he's, uh, the reason I mentioned that, cause he's just published with IVP, uh, last years. And, um, anyways, fascinating story, but he went to Washington DC, just walked it. Right. And did, uh, I forget how many miles it was, several hundred miles and just wanting to see life from that perspective. And I think his latest book was, or his second latest book was, I See You, right? That very point that you're, mm -hmm. that so many times we're driving through a neighborhood and I'm guilty of this. Um, you come to a stoplight and someone has a, a sign or, or um, just simple things. I was going to play hockey downtown Boise the other, the other week. You see someone with a mat, right? And your natural, in my natural impulse, unfortunately, is to keep moving. Um, and not stop and have a conversation. Like, how have these interactions you've had changed the way that you approach people like that in positions of yeah. need? I mean, yeah. So my best friend in the entire world, who I run my blog with, called I'm That Wife. Hmm. Um, her dad was homeless for years, and so the homeless community. I, I actually started serving in a shelter because I know my best friend, and I watched her go through life, and I watched her dad 
transition into this community. And so I, I, I think my perspective is different just because I've spent year, I mean, probably seven years volunteering in the homeless shelter. I teach a class for them, actually. I haven't started since I just moved back to Michigan. Before I left, I taught for them for years, um, a communication course at the homeless shelter. And I, I like to say that I learned how to speak in that class because I had an audience of people who were like, literally would put their heads down like, we don't want to be here. We don't want yeah. this. And if I could just get them to pick their heads up, and decide that something I was saying mattered. I just felt like, man, this is the best training I've ever had for public speaking was sitting here and teaching these classes. But there's so many people in the homeless shelter. I just want people who are listening to know this who have full-time jobs. Yeah. And that also was just a life-changing yep. experience to realize, oh, there are people who are mm. working, they're cashing you out at Walmart and you have no idea that that person doesn't exactly. have a home. Well, I think, and also just how many people go through like a breakdown. Yeah. I'm, yes. I tweeted about this yes. recently. A lady was a professor at Notre Dame, and her husband left, and it just crushed her. And she wow. fell into drugs and alcohol, lost her kids, which crushed her more. And she was ended up in a shelter. This was a Notre Dame professor, Ivy League. I mean, mm -hmm. it was just mm -hmm. there's so many stories that I've met. It's so hard to judge people anymore. Well, yeah. Dave, I'll say one more thing, then I'll let you jump in here. Um, I remember when, when I was in Toronto, Heather, and, you know, living in a, one of the poorest regions of, of the city and going into these high-rise apartments, government subsidized. Uh, and so just by nature of that, you had a lot of drug dealers. I mean, I remember walking in and like, I think within the span of like two minutes, right, one guy came at me like with a knife kind of staggering with, you know, drunk. And then another, you know, weird interaction in the elevator and then another person just comes out like yelling at you. You have all this. And so when that happens, your mindset is, okay, everyone in this building is needy. And this is my mindset, right? Um, and, and they, you know, so I'm here to help them. And so, I, but I just began making, you know, friendships. And what was interesting in that particular dynamic, so many new immigrants, right, from all around the world. And what was interesting over and over again was that they had professional degrees, but they just didn't translate to Canada. Didn't, yes. housing prices were through the roof. And so in a lot of ways, and this is, one of my things that I realized through that was that they, I was not there to be their teacher. And really in reality, I was, I should have been their student. And it took me a while to kind of make that adjustment. Um, because when you see things like that, you tend to just group and, and say, okay, well, you know, obviously if you just picked yourself up by your bootstraps, you could do something when right. sometimes, mm. um, people don't have the bootstraps, right? It's, it's, it's a little tough. Right. So. Dave, any thoughts? No, so I, I'm very intrigued, Heather, by your your comments about the classroom and not making assumptions. Yeah. Um, what would you say to a, a young teacher? Go, I mean, going into the classroom these days, how is that? Um, maybe the the caution against, you know, so it's very easy for me. So like the students that are punctual, um, like I value. There's these certain things that I I valued, and then I made base assumptions based on whether or not these sort of met these expectations. But I feel like, uh, especially in the last few years, um, as you learn stories, right, that um, the compassion side of things, like how how has how has uh, learning the stories of some of your students maybe led to greater compassion? You know, I'm thinking of a pastor even. Uh, there's so many vocations where it seems like that that sort of uh, reticence to just judge somebody by something you see quickly uh, could have value. Mm. 
Yeah, I think always the difference between our judgment and our empathy is whether or not we took the time to hear the story. Mm. I, I mean, do we ever, I, I think judgment is really reserved for people that we don't know. Hmm. We very rarely judge the people that we know well, because we understand the backdrop to that horrible decision that they made. Yeah. Right? And you're like, well, there's so much more than this. I'm My best friend, like I said, whose dad was homeless and drug addicts, they are so much more than that. Yeah. And I got to watch that even growing up with her. They love their daughter, right? But they also struggle with addiction, which literally physically changes your brain. And so it's just once you get to know, and this is a communication principle, the more we know about people, the more you like them, period. And so how do we give people the time and space to know them? And something, a strategy that I do, and especially has become extremely important to me in the pandemic, is just making sure I know all my students' names. Mm And I know that that's not, if you have, I'm at smaller Christian schools. Um, if you have, you know, a hundred students, you can't do that. But for me, I, I typically have 50 or under. I'm, I just pray and I do it with my students so they know I'm trying. I'll start class maybe day two or day three and just say like, God, help me to remember each person's names. Give me the aptitude to remember because it matters. And students change what they will even say in my classroom when I say, yeah, David, mm-hmm. What do you want to share? It changes the entire relationship. Yeah. She knows my name, yeah. right? And it changes whether or not they show up. It changes whether or not they're late. And I, I also, like, I had a student just the other day that wasn't there. And I said, okay, you have like two more times to be absent before I take the entire class to your dorm room. And we're <laughs> going to knock on the door and we're going to say, we miss you, right? Like, and it's not coming from a place of like, I'm going to teach you. No, no, I want them to know I care when you don't show up. Mm-hmm. It matters to me. And it changes the dynamic of the entire class without you here because I know who you are and mm-hmm. I know what you bring. And I have gone to students' dorm rooms. We've, I, I'm not making that up. I have shown up at your dorm room and say, are you ready? Yeah. Let's go, bro. Yep. Yeah. Right? So good. Yeah. Have you found the, lo- the more that you've taught, you know, and spent time in the academic world, the importance of spending time like in, in the homeless shelters and things like that has been critical for your soul. Like, have you, have you felt that drift to just want to stay in the world of academics and kind of remove yourself more mm-hmm. from the hurt and kind of insulate yourself? Have you felt that tug or not really? You know what? I think the reason I will always stay teaching, I think you would agree with this, David, is that you aren't removed, mm. yeah. right? Like, just by 100%. the nature of teaching and what I've realized is the more students I have, once I hear their stories, I'm not removed. I have students that are living under a bridge and I didn't know it. Right. So the more I stay, I will always teach because of that factor in my life. I just think it's important for my writing. It's important for how I see God. It's important for how I remain a student of humanity is yeah. to put myself in that situation where I get to meet 40 college kids every semester yeah. And learn from them, and hopefully they also learn. From but them. where do you where do you get that line, right? You know, not seminary, but a cemetery, right? I mean, it's so dry, right? And there's such mm-hmm. a disconnect between where I went to Christian school and then the church that I take, and then you get all those conversations. What separates you then, in the way that you view that, from professors that kind of fall into a rut of, all right, I'm here to show up and clock in and clock out. I mean, I, I don't. I hope there's not a lot of that, but but I have. Um, you do hear those complaints, uh, certainly. You know, I think we serve where we were hurt. Hmm. And the one thing that when I look back on my own experience, I outside of my parents, I had incredible parents, but I never had an adult say, I see you. Hmm. 
Um, I, I was actually the first person to be expelled from my Christian school. Eighth grade, right? So if anything, I had adults that eighth grade. Yeah. I had a, You did your homework. I sure did. I had you adults that would reject me, right? So I never had that. And so it's, I think because of the isolation that I experienced growing up and always just hoping that I was good enough or hoping I was picking the right thing and trusting the two adults that I knew my parents to be yeah. um, giving me wise advice. I want to just be a, a you know, one of the other adults in young people's lives that they get to have that I didn't have. Yep. And so I think that's where it comes from is having never had it. Mm. Yeah. I think, I think to kind of jump in on what you said, I tell people the way that I get to disciple, like be involved in the disciple making process happens to be, I'm a band teacher, but teaching music to people and conducting and rehearsing, that is sort of like the way that God uses to place me in people's lives. Like I'm, I'm sort of, I'm ish pastoring almost in some ways. I feel like in those kind of mentoring relationships happen because I also like dumped content, but the the content dump stuff is kind of a baseline. Like it's not, I love it and I can nerd out it and, and nerd out about it and talk about Mahler and all this stuff. But really what excites me is like what you're saying, connecting with students, seeing God work in their lives. Yeah. It's a, it's a blessing. The classroom is my mission field. Absolutely. And I had, I'm thinking of when I was at a secular community college, I felt like the Holy Spirit was telling me to start a worship service on campus for them. And I asked the university or the the community college, and they gave me a space to have this worship service. It was like an auditorium right by the gym. And we'd have 50 non-Christians showing up every single week to worship. Mm. And so, and the last school I was at, it was a Christian school, but we had a hundred young people coming to our church from that university. So the once you get in that role where you get to actually do life with somebody and they value you and you value them, it absolutely carries over into ministry. And that has been true for me, whether in a secular environment or a Christian environment. You're kind of unique that I don't know of too many other Christian leaders, influencers that do as great a job, um, interacting so like with your social media following as you do, um, obviously yeah. on, on Twitter. Thank you. Yeah. So, cause it's, it's interesting. One of the points you made in the book, which I read and did my homework on, um, Thank you. is, is I forgot how you put this, but basically, uh, we've forgotten that social media is social, right? And we look at it as a platform yeah. to just share our ideas. And actually I've fallen into this sometimes. And so that really made me think, um, you don't treat it like that. You really interact well with people. And so what advantages have you seen from that? How did you kind of get started in the whole Twitter sphere? And how has that changed the way that you communicate with people? Yeah, that that tweet that you read earlier is was my first viral tweet. And I think I had, I don't know, maybe 900 followers or something when I tweeted that. And then I went from 900 people to 5000, I think, literally in 48 hours. And then I just every month for about a year and a half, I was having a viral tweet every month. And so it just kept growing and growing and growing. And now we're over 50,000 people, which is still crazy to me. But I think the same principles that I originally showed up with apply. And that's that these are not just computers. These are people. Mm And I have to, I think any good communicator remembers that. You can't get up on a stage. Actually, if there's any pastors listening, I think this is really important because I teach public speaking. You you have to say to yourself, people, 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 people. You're not speaking to an audience. You're speaking to a person. And how do you make your message translate 
even if there's 2000 people right. there, how do I make this connect to the person that is sitting in that seat? Mm. And I think social media should be ran the same way where you're always thinking, how do I connect this message to a person? That's good communication. How do you marry that with communication? Because it's interesting. I think I was watching your interview, I think with Preston Sprinkle, where you were talking about this, that isn't it kind of funny where people all throughout their week are used to communication. I'm watching a football game, right? Oh, I can tweet about this. I can interact. I can, and that happens in every other sphere of their life, but then they get to church and then it tends to be very, um, one-sided for better or for worse. And so I'm curious to get your perspective on that. I mean, is that something you feel like will change and needs to change in the coming years as technology shifts? Or is that, is, is, you know, let's take the Sunday morning experience, right? Uh, is that a time where people kind of need to come and just, okay, it's not about me. I just need to be quiet and listen and worship God. What's your approach on that? Yeah, I think we're going to be in trouble if you think people just need to sit down and be quiet. Mm. It's not going to happen with the next generation. It's just not. Um, they are. They have been totally socialized to participate in every experience that they experience. That's the beauty of the experience is that they get to be a, a collaborator and a participator in it. Yeah. So that may have worked, I think, for a long time. But I, I do personally, as a communication person, I think it's important that we continue to evolve as the generation evolves because the message is that good. It's yeah. worth figuring out how do we connect it to a next generation of people because it's that do we believe that this is a life-changing message yeah if so my goodness i want to do everything i can to make sure it's accessible hmm. yeah i think uh, just as a foundation as i would say corporate worship has to be more than just like a meeting of the minds anyways like if we're just there to like this is more than a lecture and i think it's dialogical between god and his people anyways and it should be dialogical between the people themselves. I don't, I don't now, know. How do you I, do that? That's what I'm wondering. Yeah. yeah yes. No. Uh, good question. I, but I think we should at least be wrestling with those things. I know some, I mean, obviously a small group ministry is more dialogical in nature, but that doesn't necessarily fix a Sunday morning issue. At the very right. least, I would say people have to participate. It cannot be like watching a drama unfolding on the stage. And we kind of just watch. I think, I think to her, to your point, Heather, like people want, to participate. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, and I agree with you. I think I, I have different models that I'm playing around with in my own ministry, in my own mind. Um, but I think that, I think the coming down and sitting, the coming together and sitting down can be really great in some ways for evangelism, because I know if I, if I was a new person walking in, I might like that. I might like that. I can just kind of peer my head in and yeah. see what's happening. You know, what was yeah. actually in COVID when my husband, we started doing the church in the parking lot, like so many people did, we had tons of people showing up that didn't go to our church, mm -hmm. but they loved the idea that they could kind of like Be stay in their safe space of their car and, and poke their head out and see what was going on. And so I love that. I think we just need to do the work to wrestle and figure it out. There's something to be said about that, Heather, because I think my natural kickback is, oh, well, no, I mean, we need that's the exact thing that's wrong with the church in America, right? We need to integrate, we need to help people. But that is an absolute reality, case in point, right? right? My wife and I got up and we were just getting around, you know, just have a newborn, right? So we got around for church a little bit late and it we realized, okay, man, this last week, we're gonna be 15 minutes late. We don't like to do that, right? And so the temptation, I'm thinking, if I am not really an established Christian, the obvious temptation is for me to just stay home because People will notice when we walk in, things like that. And so there is really something I think to be said about that of creating space for people to be able to come in 
and and have different layers where they can. Yes. Know. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. You mentioned that. Yeah. But I love, but I agree with David about the small group model. Mm. We did a thing on my campus two years ago. It was called God's in the Basement, hmm. where we met in the basement. We had no microphones, no lights, no music. Um, and we would do discussion questions together. And I am, I kid you not, it was a, just the Holy Spirit moved in that basement in a way I've never experienced in corporate worship. I just haven't. It was, I mean, every single week we were like sobbing together and people are sharing their, their deepest fears and dreams together. And we're praying. I mean, we're not even leaving when it's over. We're just like praying over each other and on our knees. It was incredible because something really beautiful happens when we get to mm. experience community and the Holy Spirit together, mm. you know, and there's, that's, I think the thing that there's no app for is relationship. Yeah. We have to figure out how is church actually providing real relationship yeah. for people? Cause we need it. This is the loneliest generation in us history. Yeah. Yeah. So it, yeah. yeah, it's interesting. You, you know, everyone talks about this, but it is really kind of true that the, the church kind of grew out of, meal times. I mean, it, it, around a table in a, a very intimate setting. And of course you have this tension between like extemporaneous, like what, let the spirit move and let's do whatever. And sort of these fixed forms, you know, everyone has their version of liturgy, but I think the point remains like the, the fostering of intimacy and relationships that was, I mean, they had all things in common, you know, like there was this, this group of people of course, Chan is big on this these days, but this group of people that just, man, look how much they love one another. Look how much they, they look after one another. That's not normal. And I want to be a part of something right. like that. And I think that could be attractive to somebody that is lonely and who has all of these sort of pseudo connections online, but that aren't deep or meaningful. Yeah, that's great. Heather, I'm just, okay, this is a totally side question here, but I'm just curious because I, we use this phrase deconstruction, right? And a lot of Christians, I think of even like the rise and fall of Mars Hill podcast and things like that. And, and certainly there's lots of areas where the church has wronged people in the, in the past. Here, here's what's interesting. It's just an observation I have that there's a lot of people of my generation, so I'm 32, um, where they've experienced some form of hurt, but I feel like there is still, so when they maybe go to plant or when they go to um, uh, start it, ministry or, or, or think about how to engage with the church, they, unfortunately, I think there's some, still a little bit of reflex against the past. It totally, it could be, who knows what, what the past is, right? So many different, different situations and ways people have been hurt. And I'm curious to get your perspective on that because that's something I've had to work through on a Dave and, and pretty much every guest we've had has had to work through, um, that season of, okay, how do I find who I am in Christ, right? And and how do I how do I live in such a way that um, that I'm not just reacting to the bad, but that I am I'm living in light of okay, this is who the gifts God has given me, and this is how um, God wants me to live in the community that that I'm in. I don't know if that makes sense, but I it's something I've been thinking about lately. Yeah, I think we have to have a personal relationship with God. And that's part of when everybody says young people are leaving the church, they're not leaving God statistically. And by the way, it's like 86, I think I say this in the book, actually, it's like 86% of Americans believe in a higher power. 
right? So the, I don't, I actually don't think we're as anti-Christian as people think we are. I think there is so much, and for a communication person, you need to know, like, you just need one foot, in, it's called foot in the door. You need one foot inside someone's door and you can change it. If a salesman knows, if I can get a foot inside their door, yeah. I can sell them this vacuum, yeah. right? So the fact that 80 something percent of Christians or 80 something percent of Americans believe in higher power, that's a mat for a communication person. I look at that and I say, that is a massive foot in the door. Let's talk about why I believe Jesus Christ is that higher power, right? Let's have yeah. that conversation. Here's my testimony and here's my stories that I've experienced. And that's how I view it. Not in like a, you have to agree with me way, but here's what I found. Um, but yeah, I, having a personal relationship with God, I think in a lot of ways has, has liberated me from needing the church to be perfect. And what is church anyway? Like we are the church. So I think that's interesting too. When everyone's like, I'm leaving church, you can leave that group, but if God, the Holy spirit is within you, you are the church and you get to become the church every room you enter. And every time you get to invite somebody into prayer and surrender with you into Christ, you are becoming the church in that room now. So I'm less concerned with people saying I'm leaving my corporate place of worship. Okay. How are we staying in community and how are we having a relationship with God? Yeah. That should be daily. My goodness, please don't. If you're leaving your weekend, you need to be. This is a daily thing. Yeah, this right, is not right. a weekend experience. Yeah. I mean, well, the reason you know? I mentioned that you mentioned, I think it was your husband, Seth, right? I mean, going through some points before going into ministry, right? And it was kind of some frustrating experiences with, with the church and understanding, okay, man, so where, where do I fit? And um, I'm just, because I feel like that's that's a common thing that a lot of Christians that have maybe been in the church for a while, such as you and, and me and Dave have been, um, that kind of wrestle with of, of how to really, you know, find our voice without, like you say, like, you know, or, or like, I just think of like even social media, it's so easy to just get reactionary and go on and just type, okay, I hate this and I hate this, right? Rather than just being comfortable in who we are. And I don't know, Dave, maybe you can make more sense of that than I can. Um, my concern would be uh, for folks that have been hurt. And I think that's a lot of, I mean, if you spend, yeah, I don't really want to, but you know, Jess and I have been married for 15 years. I probably, you know, we have the capacity to hurt one another. And like when intimacy happens, like there will be hurts because we're fallen people, you know? And so my concern is that when, when a student you know, maybe a counseling or mentoring them or something like that, that has been hurt, has, has a past that, that it, it leads them to believe that they can somehow, um, still, um, believe all these orthodox things, pull out of the body that they're in and not engage somewhere else that like you're saying, uh, not having a community of faith that concerns me because even with podcasts and all of this type of media, I, I don't think I think they are a poor substitute for true community around a table. And I think maybe if one thing the pandemic has kind of reinforced with me is, hey, we did what we had to do to make things work, but there's nothing like being around a dinner table in a small group where we're talking about this pastor sermon from last week and praying with one another and having these type of embodied experiences. Does that make sense? Yeah, but I, I'm I'm not afraid of house church. I no. I would have no problem if we moved to a house church model. That would not mm, me neither. upset me. I, I understand that for some people that would be too much. That's not for me. And part of it is I have worked most of my ministry career in women's ministry. And so 
it's not even, I think I used to think, oh, people are just upset because somebody told you that your skirt was too short. Like, no, I have had students that were molested by their youth pastor. And when their parents complain, they essentially just say to be quiet and leave. I mean, that absolutely changes yeah. how you view corporate worship. And I, that's not just a little thing to get over, yeah. right? I mean, that is a massive abuse of trust. Yeah. And so my prayer for that person is if you can stay in Christian community and you feel safer doing that with 15 of your young adult friends at a house church, then my goodness, I think yeah. God wants you to stay in Christian community. Amen. Uh, I've witnessed yeah. definitely the spiritual abuse side of things. Uh, um, just think of different situations uh, growing up, different stories you would hear, right, for, for this person. And how the, the tragic part was how many years it was allowed to go along where nothing. Yeah. I, I feel like that's changing for the better now, but I'm curious. I do I, too. What, what are your thoughts when you talk with students that of different generations? Um, do you notice unique hurts in students from like, say, a decade in gap. So like <laughs> students that are coming from the nineties, as opposed to those that are coming from the early thousands, like, do you, do you notice that we're trending in the right direction? Mm, that's a really, I, I think if anything, I've been super discouraged, at least about sexual abuse. That is something when I do a women's seminar, even if I do a teen seminar, yeah. I can think of going around a room and 70% of them had had an abuse. Mm. And, and I, I mean, especially in diverse settings, sometimes if you, depending on what culture it's from, if the pastor said it was okay, it is very blurry mm. for parents to ever challenge a person that they see in spiritual authority. And so yeah. these young girls from different backgrounds are just, are feeling so lost, even with their own parents yeah. about what do I do, you know? So it's just such a complicated, painful reality mm. that unfortunately so many christian women i think if it hasn't happened to you you know somebody that it has and the church has a massive repenting and reconciling to do over how it's treated women. like within the church you're saying like 70 percent within the church like have experience i'm saying at a conference no 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 at a, i'm thinking of a conference mm -hmm. i did a teen conference i won't say where but when we talked in that room and I purposely, I said, mm -hmm. forget it. I'm not even going to do this seminar anymore. We're just going to sit down. I said, write down questions for me on a piece of paper anonymously and we'll discuss them. And I'm so glad I did that because they, they didn't even know how to engage mm. because most of their dads were pastors at this particular conference. And they all, about 70% of them had a story. Wow. wow. And it was very, I walked away from that feeling super discouraged, but at the same time for me personally, and I, I'm never going to shame somebody because I don't know what you've been through yeah. for me personally. I feel like my ministry and my calling is to make the church a safe space for these kids to come back to. Mm. That's what I feel like God has called me to. So I will say in front of people who don't want to hear it, these are the stories that I've been told. And how are you making sure that your church is a safe space for that young girl when she decides she wants to come back? What are you doing? Mm. Right? And so that's what I, that's the ministry God has called me to. What are, what are some practical steps um, as and I are both or have been and probably will be going forward involved in some type of pastoral ministry? Um, what's, what's your advice to pastors and ministry leaders about creating that type of environment? For for the most vulnerable among you, um, like what what are what are some measurables of a healthy environment in your in your view? Yeah, I think the one of the 
this is just a basic level, but who is even handling those conversations? Who do you have on staff that everybody in the church knows this is who I go to if I have a sexual harassment or abuse complaint? The same thing when I talk to a university and they say to me, we value diversity. Who is on staff that every black student or minority student on your campus knows this is a safe person's office for me to walk into and say what I just experienced. If you can't answer that question, I guarantee you there are people who have experienced abuse and don't know who to tell. Mm. Right. So how are we putting our money where our mouth is and actually making sure that in every single local congregation, there's some type of office set up so that people know this is where I go. And this person is is here to make sure that this any accusation gets talked about. Okay, I'll go here. Um, (laughs) Since this is where we trap you, it's like 39 minutes. And so we get to the really (laughs) controversial stuff. I think even last week, right, we had we had Oz Guinness on the podcast. That was very upfront like there were some things i just tend to disagree a little bit in terms of um just the relation to the church and politics just a slightly different take but great conversation one of the things you do i think from my observation is you interact with a lot of different things so in your book right you talk about george floyd and then you talk about even uh, some of the stuff from trump a little bit in in there online you've engaged numbers of different um what some might say hot button topics. And so I'm curious your perspective from the crowd that you would work with and interact with. Um, let's just take the last several years from 2016, Trump and, every, and all of that. How, how has that changed the way that, the, that many of the people, the Christians you work with view the quote unquote evangelical church, right? I've cer- certainly, we've certainly seen huge shifts like in the church in Canada, I would say, from talking to ch- church leaders there. W- what's been your perspective? So I, again, I serve young people. So yeah. these are the conversations that I have. And I can remember sitting last semester and it was like a senior seminar type class at a wonderful Christian university. And my students feeling totally disengaged with church because of they were like, you don't understand my whole life. The people who taught me about God and taught me about the fruits of the spirit and taught me about love and taught me about goodness and service, I am watching become very different people than I've always known them to be. And how do I rectify that? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I think this is the reality is young people, I think, want their churches to engage at the, at the issues that they say that they are supposed to engage in, mm-hmm. in their real worlds, mm-hmm. right? How do we serve the action? How, who in your community even knows you're there? And this is a conversation I would have with my husband all the time. If this church closed down, would anybody in this actual community care besides the members of the country club who are coming? Right. Would right. anybody yeah. in this community, at this, those apartment complexes right there, yep. are they going to say, oh my goodness, our world is so much worse because that church is gone. And so he, I'm so grateful for the person I married because he would try to structure things where absolutely if that church was gone, that apartment complex would know. Yeah. And it would be a massive loss to them because they're just, he was giving out 31,000, World Vision, fantastic organization every mm-hmm. church pastor can call yeah. um, and see what they're doing in their community. World Vision, they were giving out 31,000 pounds of food, of fresh vegetables and fruits to their community. The line, I mean, you never saw anybody like a line like this to go to church, <laughs> but that line would stretch halfway down the street of people coming when COVID first happened who couldn't get food stamps because maybe of their their citizenship status. 
and they're showing up for any type of fresh food. Mm. I mean, to me, that's, I just, I want the church to actually be what scripture and the gospel has called us to be, which is to bring good news to the poor, Mm. right? And recovery of sight to the blind and set the captives free. Just the other day, I think it's Matthew 10 or 11, I can't remember which one, where, you know, John writes to Jesus or he sends a message to the, the, John the Baptist sends a message to Jesus. Yeah, yeah. Hey, what's the deal, right? (laughs) You're supposed to have come. And, and so like, are you really the one? And and what's interesting as I was meditating on that, thinking about that, I was like, that's a lot, that's a question that he's asking from uh, prison and it's incredibly difficult. And what does Jesus say back to him? He says, tell, tell them the things that are going on, right? The blind are seeing, the deaf are hearing, the, these things, right? And you're a writer. Um, you often hear, show, don't tell, right? And, and yeah. I feel like, um, like as, as you're saying, so many times we get into tell mode, <laughs> do this, do this. But maybe what's lacking is great uh, examples of people that have really shown what it, what it means to um, embody Christ in, in this world. And uh Yeah, I think there's a frustration that I sense maybe in in some of my students that the orthodoxy that is taught and believed does not seem to be followed by some sort of praxi that also reflects those beliefs, and they seem to have a a real ability to kind of cut through the baloney and 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 have a low tolerance uh, for hypocrisy, and yet. Yet I feel like some like we all need each other, right? And so yeah. the polarizing that's happening also kind of breaks my heart a little bit because, um, you know, I, I learn a lot from people that are ahead of me on the journey. Mm. And not just like super spiritual things, but also just practical things. Um, mm. And we had a, an elderly lady sort of give a testimony in a teaching time uh, a couple Sundays ago. And just like some historical perspective on something that they used to do in their church. And I was sitting around, we're all like, that's amazing. And none of us had ever been a part of a place that regularly did foot washing or had these agape love feasts and all these things they were talking about. I was like, man, how, how much poorer we would be if during these times she was not there sharing with us. And so I long for that sort of the suspicion maybe that I feel has sort of been heightened post 2016 between generations. Is that fair to say? Like I sense this suspicion almost both ways. Um, is that fair? Yeah, I think it is. And I, I'm like you where I have experienced, I, my mentor is older and I see the Holy spirit and God through him so much and could literally just spending a couple, three years learning from him. I've learned more in those three years than I would have ever learned in my 30 years by myself. I mean, just jewels of wisdom and somebody who has walked so closely with the Lord. And when I say an experience is like, Hey, this reminds me of experience that I went through. It's you cannot be having godly mentorship by somebody who is older than you. What a loss the church would have if we did not have that. Yeah. Let's end with this. There's your book. It's not your return. Highly recommend (laughs) it. Um, what do you want people to take away after reading this and for the person that's in a waiting season right now and they're wondering okay god what are you doing whether it's through post-covid in the midst of covid um man several of us have just lost some close people the last year and it's it's been really tough um what's your message to them yeah i just did chapel at my university and i was wondering that the same thing same question what's the message that i would give to young people right now and what i ended on is genesis 28 where jacob is fleeing right he's 
tricked Esau and he's gone now and he's trying to go get a wife and it's a 450 mile journey by foot. And there, as he is in the desert, not sure if he's even going to ever see his parents again, he sees the ladder that ascends to heaven and angels are ascending and descending and Jesus Christ himself stands above the ladder. And in Genesis 28, I think verse 18 or 17, it says, um, surely God is in this place and I was not aware of it. Mm. And so the message that I would say to people is, is it possible that right now in the midst of whatever desert we are in, where it just feels like this is so dark, it just feels like, I don't know if I'm ever even going to make it to my destination. I don't know if I can keep even taking one step forward. Is it possible that God is in this place? Is it possible that right here in whatever basement we are in, angels are ascending and descending and Jesus Christ himself sits there with you? Is it possible that God is in this place, even if we are unaware of it? Mm. Love it. Fantastic. Where um, Best place for people to connect with you online? Yeah, um, Twitter is my favorite yeah. app. So you can find me on Twitter at Heather T is in Thompson Day, D-A-Y. Well, Dr. Heather Thompson Day, thank you for uh, joining us today. It's an it's, uh, awesome privilege and, and lovely to have to share. You've been listening to the Monday Christian Podcast, the program that helps you put into action the truth of God's word that you hear on Sunday to your everyday life on Monday. For more info on this program, simply visit our website, themondaychristian.com. That's themondaychristian.com. 